Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Welcome to this episode of the Transforming Society podcast. I'm your host, Jess Miles, and today I'm speaking to Carol Rebass and Akuko Tomamatsu, who, along with David Goff, are guest editors on a special issue of Evidence and Policy, which examines the relationship between evidence and policy and disability. Carol is Professor of Health and Social Care at the University of London, University Wellbeing Champion and an Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Lead. She has lived experience of disability and disabled children. Ikuko is CEO at Tomolab LLC, a research and consulting firm for the field of medicine and welfare, and is a visiting researcher at Osaka University. The articles in the issue cover the problem with how evidence is used in the policy process around disability and the need for people with disabilities to be included in policy making. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the problems with current models of disability, which focus on it being a problem and a deficit, and which is often used to justify disenfranchisement of people with disability. Our focus today is to highlight these issues and offer ways that they could be overcome. Welcome, Carol and Ikuko. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for speaking to me today. Um, so I mentioned in the introduction, but can we start by talking a little more about the problems with current representations of disability? Several papers in the special issue focus on disabled people being rendered invisible, for example. Please, can you highlight some of the key issues here? I think I'm going to start with this one. Um, and so there are two main ways that disabled people are rendered invisible. And the first is through disabilism, which means that they're undervalued and they're wrongly represented in policy. And the other is ableism, where they're totally ignored from policy. Um, and so a, a good example that is uh, considered at length in the special issues around surveys. And if you think about any survey, it is a poor representation of any group. It, it's just accepted that surveys are not ideal on their own to inform policy and practice. Um, but in the case of the disabled, um, it's particularly acute because if you think about all the different processes within a survey, and then you start off, um, a good survey tends to be built on validated questionnaires. So those are questionnaires that have been shown to measure what they're meant to measure. But I'm currently designing such a survey for the disabled. And I find it hard to answer the questionnaires. Um, right. But they're written in such specific ways, the questions. And so um, I've, I've actually been piloting my own survey. It takes me about 15 minutes to do, but I gave it to someone with brain fog with long COVID and it took them over 45 minutes because they just wow. wrap their heads around the questions. So that's okay. the first problem. And then the second problem is how do you um, give the survey out? So is it online, is it by paper? And each choice you make all along the survey process excludes certain people from society. Um, and, and so that's um, one reason why they're, they're always partial representations. Um, but another problem, a real problem that I have with surveys of 
um, that try to include disability is that they almost always ask for a diagnosis. Uh, they start off, what is your diagnosis? And that excludes an awful lot of people with disability. So there's sort of what's called the grey zone of disability. So people who mm. have conditions that take a long time to be diagnosed, such as endometriosis, um, autism, ADHD and so forth, can take 10 to 15 years. So they become excluded. And people who have conditions that um, um, don't fit neatly into a diagnostic category, non-COVID is one of those, um, and people who actually don't want to go and seek out a diagnosis. So surveys automatically exclude all of those. In my survey, um, I'm focusing rather on impact. Um, and um, that is something that the government is, is uh, trying to um, include as well now. Um, the other issue with surveys is people don't fill them in if they're not invested in them in some way or motivated in some way. Um, so people who are depressed, um, might not fill them in. People with autism who find it hard to, to communicate how they feel might feel they shouldn't fill it in. Um, people who are disempowered. And so basically surveys are, tend not to reach the most vulnerable. And, and so what Prince says in the special issue is that this leads to the deproblematization of disability. So with only the most vocal and, and, and the most able to complete surveys filling them in, the government cannot see the problem of the most vulnerable. Um, right. So, a survey a survey is the most common way of doing research, do you think? Um, so they have been one of the, the ways that are relied on um, um, in policy. So policy looks for a strong evidence base and they are meant to be more objective. Big data is meant to be more yeah. objective and it has exactly the same problems. Um, um, but there is a, a move to more qualitative research as well, which is recognised um, in policy making, of course, that, that yeah. um, other forms of evidence are important. But as the special issue shows, in many cases, it's much more convenient to resort back to the, these sorts of objective measures. And they're actually used politically as well um, as ways to justify decisions. So. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll probably talk about that a bit later. Ikiko, did you have anything to add to that? Yes, uh, basically, the law that Carol explained that key, key issues, but also if I add another perspective is about that uh, identity are very active disabled. Disabled, uh, disabled people. Of course, the mm -hmm. surveys of any group give only a partial representation of the group. But at the same time, so through few research and in some research, I noticed that some disabled people and also that their family members are well trained or get used to taking part into, into the survey or cooperating such survey. Most of them are often very active, for instance, in social media, which they have the Instagram or Facebook or their websites. So therefore, uh, with this kind of people for the researcher, it's easier to contact and to access for the research. They're already and, very visible, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, but this has, uh, this occurs a kind of spiral relationship. This spiral has developed between disabled people and researchers. So, in other words, they, uh, the survey more tends to exclude the disabled individuals and family members, family voices who have not often been included in surveys so far. Because more participating in the survey and people are more involved and opposite side that's excluded and yeah. this kind of the session continues. 
yeah yeah okay and i i hope we'll talk a bit more about later about alternative ways of doing things and how things can be better um in terms of policy making in the editorial for the issue you say while disability advocates and activists have achieved much policy making still falls short and people with disabilities still often experience substandard employment educational community and health outcomes and you relate this to the way labels like deviant and undeserving have been used socially and politically can you give some recent examples of policy that has failed disabled people one thing that I'm quite interested in is education um, and universities have to make reasonable adjustments for students. Um, but the, um, and the idea of the reasonable adjustments is to bring the disabled students up to the same level of opportunity as the non-disabled. Um, so that might mean things like recording lectures for someone with autism who has social anxiety or providing transcripts for deaf students. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is this fits with the social model, you know, it's trying to remove barriers. So that sounds great. But the problem is that the universities require you to have a diagnosis in order to work out the reasonable adjustments. So mm. the medical model. And so that can lead to um, terrible problems for, for students. As I said, many people don't get diagnosed until quite late in life for various reasons. Yeah. And on top of that, students um, will often not even say that they're disabled because they're worried about the stigma um, and whether they'll be considered um, worthy enough to be in university yeah uh, and so then they don't get the help and so what should actually be happening is that instead of applying these reasonable adjustments once you have a medical diagnosis that they should always be there you know lecture should always be recorded transcript should always be provided right. so that's more in tune with the social model so um, another recent example in the pandemic is around lockdown um, and the government opened stores early for disabled people and, mm -hmm. and elderly people. And this was before the normal opening time, so very early in the morning. And if they'd actually asked disabled people whether that was suitable, they would have found out it probably wasn't because if you have mobility issues, it's going to take you a long time to get to the shop. If yeah. you have something like multiple sclerosis, you, you find it hard to get dressed quickly. And people with autism tend to have very different hours, so they don't get up till the afternoon often. So this was a policy that was totally wrongly applied simply because disabled people weren't asked. And, yeah. and, and then in the, um, in the special issue itself, there are two um, uh, particular examples, which I won't go into great detail on because um, people can read about them. But um, so they relate to the Department for Works and Pension, which is notorious um, in this regard and, and is associated with several suicides because of really undervaluing people's accounts. And this relates back to this idea, this grey zone where people don't fit neatly into boxes, but the DWP uses these diagnostic criteria and then anyone who doesn't exactly fit them is considered to be inauthentic or lying basically um, yeah. at least the suicides and and so uh, one paper in the special issue talks about that and it, it, it that this idea of deviancy um, originates really with um, Thatcher's ideas you know where um, people with on welfare were called scroungers and we even had this serious benefit street where people were really represented as the dredges of society in there mm. um, 
And so um, just to say that in the special issue, Porter does talk about this as a procedural objectivity, which is what we were talking about before, where it's convenient to use these particular criteria to get the job done of processing people, but it doesn't take their true lives into account. And um, um, the other example is Deering, and Deering looks at um, um, the push towards um, employment, which the DWP in the UK does push for. And yeah. so you're a good citizen if you're employed, you're deviant if you're not. And so even people with quite severe intellectual disability are being pushed to do work. And that might be going around to the local chip shop one hour a week and getting a bit of token money for it. But as soon as they get that money, they're not unemployed anymore. But at the same time, they're not waged. And so they, they miss both sets of employment law. And so they're exploited and made very vulnerable. Um, so those are some examples. And I know that Akupa's got some very interesting examples as well. So, so maybe the, I can share the one example with Casey with uh, children with complicated and complex medical care needs for in for instance, ventilators. Like I have been involved in some this kind of research and and uh, difficult things happen because with school and for elementary school and junior high school and school prepare and provide that nursing services and also the assign that some school nurses. So right. on the other hand, that if the children have is a very complicated medical care needs and school nurses cannot treat them even they are they have the professional license in this yeah. situation what's happened so it's and every uh, mother have to stay at school all day every day and i've met several mothers uh, who who had gone to school for 12 years wow so that's impossible for everyone, isn't it? Because yeah. almost like uh, living in a hospital. Yeah. Because it, yeah, just the location is different, but the situation, the situational setting is like a hospital setting, and children have to stay with always with mothers. And right. school nurses uh, cannot treat well due to that development of medical technology and complicated medical care. So, yeah. and this is also a current my research field in, in Japan as well. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. That's quite shocking, but fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. So moving on to look at the causes, well, we've looked at some of the causes of the problems, but there's a few articles in the issue, and one of them is open access, that look at data production and how measurement choices are subjective. So this ties in with the discussions we've had about surveys already. I think, but what is the data problem in the context of policy making and how could it be tackled? The mind, again, so I will share that some, some idea based on my research. And uh, for instance, that research papers such as Porter and Pearson and Watson on this issue have, mm. have shown that data prepared for policy making is not necessarily objective. And related to this issue, I would like to two other perspectives. So firstly, I'd like to ask the identification of new categories of disabled children occurred or appeared, in particular in the 
last decade due to the development of medical technology. That just I talked about that cases at school nurses. Yeah. And for example, in Japan, uh, not only Japan, probably as in some other developed countries, the number of children, for, for instance, with ventilator support in their everyday lives is increasing. Uh, currently, about currently in Japan, about 20,000 children uses ventilators at home and in their everyday life outside the hospital. Okay. Mm. Is that a lot? Yeah, very a lot. The number yeah. is very increasing. So, but this means, uh, but previously, if the, the, uh, the child had a very severe condition like with ventilators, we assume that they should be in the hospital and hospitalized. But currently they can live at home because uh, apart from that ventilator support or medical, complicated medical support, uh, their conditions are relatively well because they are not in uh, severe physical or mental, mental issue, mental uh, mental condition so okay. they can walk and they can communicate yeah so the, in this way they cannot be categorized in a conventional concept of disability mm -hmm. so in the context of the policy making so in that way that we need to reconsider and develop the concept of disability itself because otherwise that policy making is that not fit to the actual situation. I'm a methodologist, so I just like to make a couple of methodological points. So mm. one is, um, and, and the first one is covered in, in the special issue really, which is about data being good enough to be used. So um, a lot of the disabled feel that they haven't had enough research being done on them. And so they tend to get satisfied with quite poor quality data as better than nothing. And Interesting. It, it is good enough to start off an advocacy process and get policymakers to be aware of issues. Um, and so that's important. And, and in fact, in the special issue, um, Priestley and Graminos actually argue that that should be done. But at the same time, um, the policymakers need to um, be transparent about the quality of the data and be appropriate with their use of the data. And so, for example, at the moment, the UK Disability Unit has been doing what looks like some quite good work, actually. So they've been um, um, doing some ethnographic work and a survey of the disabled. Um, um, you know, they try to make their survey more inclusive for the, uh, people who can't fit it in. I talked before about the problem of links. They can just write a short paragraph, um, things like that. And they are transparent about their data. So they say that 94% um, are white respondents and that 47% hold a degree or uh, equivalent and that many more are in work than in the general population. And um, But then they sort of push that to one side and then their overall statements are X percent of the population have um, problems accessing um, buildings when over 70% of their respondents had mobility issues. So that's actually not surprising. So that immediately cuts out a large proportion again. And, and, but then they actually build a multi-million pound strategy on the basis of that. So it's being appropriate. Um, a, a lot of um, 
um, studies lump people together with uh, disabilities. So, yes. for instance, um, with autism, um, the autistic voice has been um, quite successful in, in getting autistic research done. But until recently, autistic research would say things like, we took 20 people with autism or 20 autistics, and uh, we gave them a coping test, and this is what we found. And if you did the same study with non-disabled people, you'd say, we took 20 women um, of this socioeconomic level, blah, blah, blah. Uh, right. And that tends not to be done. And so disability is the one category. Yeah. I yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, the autistic mantra is if you've met one autistic, you've met one autistic and it doesn't yeah. fit at all. It's not aligned. Uh, the other thing I quickly want to say is around um, qualitative um, studies. So there are some qualitative studies. This um, the UK Disability Unit did a very nice ethnographic study, um, gave really rich data but it only used nine people across the whole of the UK to do wow. that. And the argument with qualitative research is that it's in-depth data, so you don't need many people. But that depends on the purpose you're using it for. So if you're using it to make people aware, then that's fine. But if you're using it to help to build a survey and a strategy, it's not fine. And you should use something like quotient sampling. Quotient sampling says, okay, what are the categories that I need to focus on? then I'm going to take, um, for instance, say it's the different types of disability. So it's people with mobility issues, people with sensory issues and so forth. You say, I'm going to look at five people with sensory issues in the north of England in a rural area, five people in the north in a city and on like that. And you build up um, these little um, groups of sampling and then you can say more because you can compare them, you can look within them and um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so look, there's a range of papers in the issue that look at this, like categorization and labeling and how it affects social constructions of identity and things like that, and what it means um, in terms of how evidence used and whose voices are included. And that's what we've just been talking about, really. Um, so is there any more you want to say about the significance of how we categorize people with disabilities and also how we allow them to define themselves? That categorization, uh, also, the, can, uh, can I briefly add another point as well? Because mm -hmm. the quality as uh, the type of data, like e either qualitative and quantitative data, but the impact mm -hmm. uh, to the policy makers, it's not simply the depends on the number of participants and also that the number of the data, but the one thing, for instance, uh, sometimes that uh, this video data, like uh, video data we provide a lot, it's very supportive to under to to promote understanding of policy makers because social scientists can use and can make sophisticate that categorization. But all, on the other hand, the policy makers cannot fully adopt these data and quality. Because, for instance, when I provided the data with statistical data and also the interview data and also some pictures, but in the, in the end, and also the, along with that some video data of 15 family members for the mm -hmm. 24 hours with, uh, with families and children with complicated medical care needs. And uh, this, the final video data brought the most impact to 
to their understanding. Because emotionally, they feel uh, they change, they have a kind of impact. Then finally, they decided to strongly con uh, consider and to make a new regulation and to make a law itself. So then I felt, uh, I felt that before that, we also struggled a lot that categorization of data and also the, to create the evidence. But the, this, like a seeing is believing, like I just experienced that. The yeah. impact of the data and quality is sometimes it's very simple. And so, and now, oh, this is another uh, scene. So I need to consider that. Yeah. So it, it was the video and being able yeah. to see the reality of people's yeah. lives. Um, so, so thinking about um, categorization and labeling, Carol, did you have anything you wanted to add about defining people and um, how people define themselves, or how yeah. people can define themselves. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Kuka, and I, I think my way of categorising is to look at the impact rather than the condition. Um, and but it's 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 just the start. And as Kuku says, you know, you have to take whatever category you use. You have to deconstruct it. Um, you shouldn't just stick with the category. The categories are just there to try and help you to understand. Um, a situation uh, better. Um, I, I think yes, video is increasingly used. It's, it has ethical issues. So um, those and are of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Another way is um, using arts-based methods, and then you can have exhibitions, mm -hmm. which are another way without using the video ethical issues. Uh, yes. Around those, yeah. Um, and, and another issue that is uh, mentioned in the special issue is around actually um, finding people to take part in your research or to take part in policy panels. And how do you get those? You get those through existing categorizations. Um, and that tends to be through medical records. So, and I think mm -hmm. that relates to what Akuka is saying, or it tends to be through um, formal records of, of some sort and so that is really limiting voices again yeah, yeah it's, it's a real narrow window on the world isn't it when you start to think about it yeah. you mentioned earlier lockdown and the impact of that on disabled people with the policy of opening shops early um, I, I think it's important to bring the pandemic in um, because it have, has affected like disabled people so much over the last 18 months What's been the impact of COVID-19 and how, how is it indicative of um, the continued disenfranchisement of disabled people? There have been many issues with the pandemic in terms of disability and, and the widening of inequalities. Um, the first is that people, uh, disabled people have been categorised as vulnerable and then they've had restrictions imposed on them and then they've become fearful perhaps and, and, and so there's been this self-policing as well, um, so it's, it's led to a lot of issues. But I think um, some of the worst problems have been um, the neglect of the disabled in policy in the pandemic and, and there have been some very strong examples of that. So, um, for example, deaths, um, deaths from, uh, for people with intellectual disability have been um, some of the highest. So I think 60% of those with uh, disabled people who've got COVID were dying from it in the early stages. And that right. was far higher 
even than um, minoritized ethnic groups. So um, yeah. Africans, for example, and Pakistanis who were very um, at risk, but it wasn't. There was no focus on that at all, was there? No, none no. at all. Yeah. So it, um, it involved charities getting together and really pushing um, before that got published. So it got published many months after it should have been these data. And even worse, the government took actually what could be seen as punitive steps against the disabled in that they, uh, they brought out in the early stages of um, the pandemic, um, the, uh, the Coronavirus Act. And what that said is, part of what that said was that um, uh, local authorities no longer had to provide support for the disabled. And that support was mandated by the CARE Act of 2014. But they, because this was a special situation, they had something um, called easement where they were no longer bound by the law. Um, mm. And, you know, some people might say, well, okay, there's limited resources, people are actually dying, we need to put the money there. But leaving aside the human rights of the disabled, um, actually, what it, this comes from um, a long policy with the government of reducing. Um, funding and yeah. so they've squeezed the local authorities and then they're saying well okay now you can get rid of the disabled so it's, it seems like a, a bit of an agenda um, and um, there are many other examples and in fact the disability news service published in, um, in the summer of 2020 17 ways that the government had acted um, or, or had failed um, the disabled so for instance not having uh, a sign language interpreter um, in the briefing, yes. uh, um, not providing accessible information and things like that. There's so many ways. And then there are more individual ways. So people being forced to work from home, not being able to have the right chairs and so maybe giving up their work or performing mm. less well and, and, and losing income. Um, reduction in services that they need, um, not just because of diseasement, but in general. So the reductions might be for everyone, but they hit the disabled particularly. Um, and I'd, I'd just like to quickly say that um, the pandemic to me has kind of mixed things up a bit. And this again goes to the categorization of disability and things that the Cooper will talk about. So if you think, for example, of someone with food allergies, you wouldn't normally fit them into a disabled category. No. Um, so they don't have many societal environmental barriers and they kind of can look after themselves and um, look at labels okay sometimes the labels are faulty but you don't tend to think of them as disabled when you think of the uh, lockdown uh, in 2020 autistics and um, people with food allergies and um, people with mobility issues weren't classed as shielded so so if you think about that so the people on the sheltered um, list could get food deliveries, all the supermarkets gave them allocations and the no priorities one on there. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the, um, the early stage of the pandemic. So that meant people with say food allergies did then meet this strong environmental barrier. They couldn't mm. get the food that they needed and that was compromised. You know, if you have a food allergy and you eat the wrong food, you can die. Yeah. So it's shifted concepts of disability a bit. So I think that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, so, so I think it's looking at, at um, impact. Um, I'm leading on a large study at the moment, which is um, National Institutes for Health Research funded, which is trying to look at that. And, and we are focusing on impact rather. And to be fair on the government, the government is also um, 
trying to harmonize the data by looking at impacts such as mobility impact, um, dexterity impact and things like that. Okay. So it is moving that way. Um, but I've also been collaborating with Cooper on, on the project that she was talking about. And uh, um, so we found in our data, in the UK data, that the pandemic actually had a lot of affordances as well. So it's given affordances, it's, it's, it's um, opened up a, a bit of an awareness about the problems that disabled people have. And so there has been more funding, which is why I got my funding. Okay. Uh, but it's also, um, you know, some people actually, some disabled people actually like remote homeworking. Some don't, some do. Um, and it's also in strengthened um, community and family bonds. That's what we've found. So, um, yeah, but Akuka's got um, some interesting things to say from the Japan data, I think. Akuka. Yes. Uh, so there, we met that negative aspect under the pandemic, but also there, it was, there were some interesting data, which was a relatively bright side data. I mean, for, uh, for instance, uh, I, met, I, I did some interviews with children and disabled children and also with their family members. And okay. they say, most of them say, like, we are, uh, our uh, lifestyle is not changed even after the pandemic because even before that, we were forced to stay home and we, cannot, we could not go out uh, as they wished. So, and now people see that very serious situation which they used to be. And along with that, in the first uh, lockdown in Japan, it was the last year in April and May, and some okay. cities and schools uh, prepared that online and distance learning setting. And unfortunately, not every city, but some cities started. And for instance, so every student were allocated iPad. Okay. So then they can uh, you, uh, just study and communicate with other friends. And this was the advantage for disabled children, they say, yeah. because previously they could, if they had felt not, not so well, they, they needed to stay home. So means they cannot any opportunity to study mm. beer distance learning online service because they were they were not set but now the day their quality and opportunity for education was a tremendously increased they said then yeah. uh, it was a uh, it was a very uh, happy story during the during the interview but after the six months and after a year so and now not only that right side but some of them like who are not disabled and not categorized as disabled children they just we uh, they are not so frequent users for this online services but still now that network among children for communication and study and also the school chats are well established among them between either disabled or not. Okay, so it's been, it's allowed them to be more included. Mm -hmm. And do you think that that will stay or do you think that it will drift back and to old ways of educating and 
uh, still stay and also the now that atmosphere as a society has changed so to to improve and all to to apply these uh, online services in the public uh, education uh, education uh, educational uh, education in schools so this means i think this will be promoted more so, so yes, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to add something to what Nakuka says. I think it's very important to hear from um, different countries about their experiences because they're very different. And in the UK, um, there have been various problems with technology. But what we found in, in our UK sample of the same data, that um, the UK children felt very isolated because of the pandemic. It didn't build up their networks at all. Mm -hmm. They seemed to depend on their friends to help them get through schoolwork anyway. So they used to like to meet up with their friends to get a bit of extra tutoring from them and support. And so they lost out on that. And moreover, and this relates back to Ikuku's um, talk about the way that um, children with complex needs are defined. In the UK, they just lumped as disabled. Um, so Japan is more advanced in, in that regard mm. now. Thanks to it's thanks to Ikuku's work on that. And um, so what happens is when these children have gone back to school in the UK, they've been further marginalised because um, they've been told because they're vulnerable, they have to sit even further away from everyone than social distancing and then the the teachers are worried they have you know they have tubes and the teachers are worried about the potential for infection covid infection because of the changing of the tube um, and so they're actually being stigmatized in a way that they weren't before so looking at all these issues and thinking about ways we can improve things now in the final part of your editorial uh, which is available to download free and we'll put a link in the description here you give us a list of ways in which people with disabilities can be better supported and allowed to participate in policy making. It would be great if you could each tell us what you think is the most significant change that could be made. The identity of the participant should be the key, another issue for, for the further research. I mean, I've talked about a bit of identification of that participant in the survey. And also because this means that this disabled people, which is a part of that identity of them. And in a situation, they may be in, in some way in the active position, but in, in some way in the passive position. But on the other hand, the researcher and policy makers see them as a positive position because they are they they need to be supported. So that's why the policy makers and researchers just think about how we and how they they need to create that evidence. Right. Yeah. So this means so there is a difference to conceptualize and perceive that individual is who is a passive, a passive person or active person. But in reality, this person has a plural identity and this identity is very fluid. It depends on the context or uh, context and also the time and with uh, also the situation, who is, who are with them, under which situation. Yes. So, and also the complicated thing is this, a technology like SNS and also the other social media developed is 
Everybody can always convey their own idea and information, but some they just focus on part of that. So that's why this identity issue is another important thing to improve. How do you yeah. think? Uh, really, the, my idea is not so clear enough, but the, uh, I just share that idea of some keywords. No, I, I totally agree. I think it's an excellent idea, absolutely. I mean, it, it is a problem, absolute problem with disability and, and, and the way disability is accepted, not understanding this fluidity. I, I guess my one of my, I've got two ideas. Um, one of them sort of taps into that or, or uh, links into that. So the first is something that is um, discussed in the special issue, which is around advocacy. And that's already recognized as a good way of getting um, messages across, knowledge transfer across. Um, but the really important point I want to make there is that you do need an influential person in the advocacy group, otherwise it doesn't work. And I don't mm. think that's got across enough in the special issue, perhaps. So you need someone who has um, legal um, standing, so a lawyer, I mean, or something like that, or, or someone who is actually a, in, um, embedded in the policymaking um, field, right. an actual policymaker. Um, to make the advocacy work. And, and that's actually shown with the Brazil study in the special issue, which actually was a very popular paper. Um, and, and they looked at the indigenous population and um, an NGO took children away from their, disabled children away from their families because there was the belief that indigenous people with their indigenous customs um, wouldn't treat these children the right way. And mm. um, so that was not based on any evidence and it was right. obviously found to not be true and so the um, local the indigenous community got together and, and they set up a community group and they tried to advocate but they weren't listened to until the federal government um, um, representatives became involved and at that point um, their, their voices were heard so you um, so that's one point but my main thing really is um, does connect with what Kuka was saying and I think that um, there should be more qualitative research more participatory qualitative research mm. that uses these different methods and um, that doesn't exclude particular groups anyone with a disability can be heard if you choose the right methods. I've got a student at the moment and um, she's involving children with intellectual disability who are non-verbal in our research. They are going to make decisions in the research process. We're looking at um, what outcomes they would like from a particular intervention. So we're asking them directly. And she's doing that by using something called talking mats, which is the traditional way that, that they communicate with their teachers, for example. Um, so, you know, um, pointing to pictures and um, for meaning. She's also using various um, um, art approaches to get them to express themselves that way. And also um, a, a, cat, a ranking game where she's putting some ideas out there and then asking them to rank them. Oh, interesting, yeah. So there are always ways you can get disabled people involved. And I don't think that's done enough. And, 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 and by using more of these, different innovative data collection methods um, we can get more voices heard um, so yeah that's my interest at the moment <laughs> thank you did you have anything else to say Kiko? Ooh, so just want to yeah uh, listen to Carol's 
uh, ideas. So just I, I remember that another point is about the combination of that method, the different kind of methods, qualitative and quantitative data. So to, in today's discussion, I briefly talk about that impact of video data. So okay, also the now uh, I I and my colleague are talking about how this a combined method, the balance, and it will depend on the target and what kind of disabled situation in which is a better way to combine the different kind of approach. So which not to exclude certain, certain voices. So that is the current three we, talk, we are tackling. Yeah. This mixed method. Yeah, it sounds like you're both working on incredibly interesting things that will take things forward again. Um, the really interesting points is that fluidity of identity, the combination of approaches. And I really like that quote where you say anyone with a disability can be included if you choose the right method. That's what it's all about, isn't it, really? Um, so thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. It was enjoyable. So, Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, the special issue of Evidence and Policy, which is published by Policy Press, is called The Many Faces of Disability in Evidence for Policy and Practice, Embracing Complexity, and is available to read on Ingenta. The editorial is free. Um, we'll put a link in the description here. You can find out more about the journal Evidence and Policy on our website at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.